Welcome to Dishing the Science with Dr. Sue. I'm your host, Dr. Sue Peterson. I'm a Canadian physician, a specialist in endocrinology and metabolism, and a diplomat of the American Board of Obesity Medicine. I draw on my over 20 years of clinical experience and my extensive research background to examine the complex issues surrounding weight management, diabetes, and overall health. Thanks for joining us today. Hi everyone, thanks for joining on drsue.ca, that's d-r-s-u-e.ca. Today we are myth-busting, 30 myths about obesity, part two. As I blogged last week on September 30th, 2023, there was an excellent clinical practice statement by the U.S. Obesity Medicine Association that tried to dispel 30 myths, misunderstandings, or oversimplifications about obesity. This entire article is a great read And while I agree with most of the myth-busting outright, I've chosen six myths which I felt deserved a little more commentary, highlighting, disagreement, or explanation. So this is my second uh, post about this article, and I'm going to talk about three of the myths that they addressed in this article. So the first one is their myth number 25. Every pound of muscle that replaces fat burns an additional 50 calories per day. So it is true that resting muscle burns more calories in a day than fat tissue. Uh, As per a table in the paper, one pound of resting muscle burns six calories per day at rest, whereas one pound of fat burns two calories per day. In other words, a pound of muscle burns three times more calories in a day than a pound of fat. But if one pound of muscle replaces one pound of fat, the difference is actually only four calories per day. So while it's definitely good to have more muscle mass and less fat mass for many reasons, uh, as a reflection of physical activity, which is good for us, uh, for bone protection, fall protection, many other benefits, the difference in numbers of calories burned at rest is not that big. Um, The other point that the authors make is that fat does not simply turn into muscle when we exercise, nor does muscle simply turn into fat when we don't. But what is true is that when we are active, we build muscle mass, which is healthy tissue to have on board. So the next myth I want to address is their myth number 27. Setting more realistic obesity goals will ultimately achieve greater weight reduction than more aggressive goals. So the authors make the argument that setting more modest goals might undermine optimism and motivation for engaging in behaviors required for meaningful weight reduction. And they note that some reports suggest that the benefits of higher motivation with having higher goals in mind might outweigh the concern that high goals might undermine effort. They comment that seemingly unrealistic targets may actually improve weight reduction results. So I feel that it's really important not to set oneself or one's patients up for a feeling of failure by setting high expectations for lifestyle-induced weight changes. While a small minority of people can achieve big weight loss success with lifestyle changes, it's really hard for most people. And even for those who do, the vast majority gain regain the weight. That's our natural biology at play. Further to that, what motivates each individual for weight management is different. Fortunately, we now have excellent new and emerging medications that can help to achieve and maintain bigger weight losses, approaching the neighborhood of what we see with bariatric surgery. The final myth I'm going to take on today is their myth number 28. Slow and gradual weight reduction is ultimately more effective than large and rapid weight reduction. 
So here the authors comment on clinical trial evidence supporting that the greater and more rapid the initial weight reduction, the greater the success of long-term weight maintenance. They also point out that those who lose more weight in the early months of treatment, like with medication for example, the better their response will be. While this is true, these studies also show that a significant proportion of people who don't have a lot of weight loss in the initial months can still show a good success at one year. For some people, it just takes time. My other comment here is that clinical trial evidence does not necessarily reflect real life because people in clinical trials get oodles of personalized support and care that usually doesn't exist in the real world. A more intensive calorie reduced program in a highly supported clinical trial will result in faster weight loss. That's true. And if that support is continued, I agree that there will be better long-term maintenance. However, a more dramatic calorie reduced nutrition program is more difficult to sustain over the long term, especially if the support isn't in place to stick to them. Again, this is trying to fight that natural biology. In accordance, studies also consistently show that when weight management medication or support is stopped at the end of a trial, weight goes back up. So again here, it comes back to each individual's journey. For some, larger and faster initial weight reduction may be the path for success. For others, slow and steady wins the race. Thanks everyone, that's it for this week and I look forward to seeing you again soon. DrSue.ca, D-R-S-U-E dot Thanks for listening to Dishing the Science with Dr. Sue. For more information about current hot topics and science relating to obesity, diabetes, and overall health, check out the show notes for links and visit drsue.ca. That's D-R-S-U-E dot Don't forget to leave a review and subscribe to this podcast on your favorite listening platforms. Medical discussion on this podcast is of a general nature only, not designed to give specific medical advice to individuals nor their individual healthcare providers, and is intended for a Canadian audience.